0: Hello, everyone, and welcome. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz, the podcast of the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and Humanities at Bard College. The Hannah Arendt Center provides an intellectual space for passionate, uncensored, nonpartisan thinking in the spirit of Hannah Arendt. My name is Jana Mader and I'm the Director of Academic Programs at the Hannah Arendt Center. It is my pleasure to introduce Roger Berkowitz, Founder and Academic Director of the Hannah Arendt Center. Roger Berkowitz is a Professor of Politics, Philosophy and Human Rights at Bard College. He's the winner of the 2019 Hannah Arendt Prize for Political Thought given by the Heinrich Böll Foundation. Stay on for more info at the end of today's episode. Our current book is The Origins of Totalitarianism, published in 1951. Make sure to subscribe to not miss an episode. Hi, Roger. It's great to see you.
1: Oh, it's great to be here, Yana. Good to see you.
0: We're back this week with our last chapter, Can You Believe It?
1: You know, even a even a great book like The Origins of Totalitarianism has to end, but uh, at least totalitarianism ends too. That's a good thing.
0: Well said. Chapter thirteen: Ideology and Terror, uh, a novel form of government. That is what we're going to discuss today. And you'll break down this short yet very dense chapter in a very helpful way. I think analyzing five main points, Arendt makes. Totalitarianism is a new form of government. Totalitarian lawfulness, terror the essence of totalitarian government, ideologies, and the role of loneliness. And since we're finishing this big book, I'd like to take a step back with you and take a look at it from today, seventy years after its publication. And uh, wanted to ask you, how is this book helpful to understand current politics, and what are aspects of her analysis in these um, three parts of the book that you find particularly interesting for today?
1: Yeah, thanks, Yana. I mean, this is a book that is is specifically concerned with totalitarianism, and as you said, this chapter is called "Ideology and Terror: A Novel Form of Government," and and it it's important because she wants to distinguish totalitarianism from tyranny, fascism, authoritarianism, illiberalism. You know, so on one basic level, you know, at a time in which I think this year in in twenty twenty four, four billion people around the world are going to be voting in elections and we're seeing a a, a massive rise in both right-wing and sometimes left-wing populism, there are real worries that we are entering a retrenchment away from liberalism towards illiberalism. That doesn't mean necessarily totalitarianism, and it's an important caveat that it's not that Arendt likes tyranny. She doesn't. She thinks tyranny is, is dangerous, but she doesn't think it's nearly as dangerous as totalitarianism, and she thinks tyranny is an old form of government that you know we've had throughout history and we've survived even totalitarianism we survived both in the Nazi government and the Bolshevik government but she thinks is a much more dangerous form of government and so understanding the differences and the specific dangers of totalitarianism I think is 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 important today to both understand to both say look if it ends up with tyranny that's bad but How we fight tyranny is one thing, how we fight and resist totalitarianism is another. The other aspect of that is that for her, totalitarianism as novel, as new, doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes and it emerges for very particular reasons. And it's a response to what she calls a new experience, a new basic experience, which really didn't exist in the world before the modern era, somewhere around the late 19th century. And that's what she would call mass loneliness, homelessness, rootlessness, metaphysical loneliness. And for her, there's, only, there's always been loneliness, right? There's always been people who are lonely. But there wasn't a mass phenomena of people feeling that their lives had no purpose and no meaning. And now there is. And that desperation that I think often accompanies wealthy liberal societies, And you can see it in the rise of mental health and the mental health crisis in in wealthy liberal societies is the fertile ground for mass movements that can turn into totalitarian movements. And the analysis of how that happens, why it happens, and how to resist it that she offers in this book and her other writings makes this book absolutely essential reading for our modern time.
0: Thank you. And here's the last chapter of Origins, chapter 13.
1: Welcome, everybody. My name is Roger Berkowitz. I'm the founder and academic director here at the Hannah Arendt Center at Bard College. Thrilled to be with you today for the virtual reading group. The last chapter Ideology and Terror, a Novel Form of Government. Many of you, I think, know this. This chapter was not in the original book, was not in the first edition of The Origins of Solitarianism. There was originally a a short three-or-so-page conclusion, which was in many ways quite good, but it was short, and it brought the book to a close, but without any kind of attempt to really articulate in Arendt's mind What is the philosophical and core origin of totalitarianism? What is the, how do we really understand totalitarianism sort of a a final way? You You read this whole book, it's five, almost 500 pages. What have we, what have we taken out of it? And after she finishes the book and publishes it, she writes a number of letters in which she says, you know, I didn't really get it. I didn't really finish it. I I I never really got to the essence of, of what is totalitarianism. And so starting in about 1952, the book originally came out in 1950, she begins to write a whole series of drafts and essays, some of which she never publishes, some of which she does publish, in which she tries to, in a sense, synthesize what she's worked on for the last, at that point, almost 10 years of her life. In this long and and brilliant book, she began writing this chapter, "Ideology and Terror," in 1952 in the summer when she's traveling in Europe, and she originally meant it to be a central chapter of another book, a book that she was going to call "The Modern Challenge to, tradi- to Tradition." But she eventually abandoned that book and instead took a revised version of this essay, "Ideology and Terror," a novel form of government. First published it in German as the concluding chapter to the new German edition of The Origins of Totalitarianism, and then translated it into English and published it as the concluding chapter of the second edition of the English edition. There are, as I said, eight or nine different either drafts or published versions of different essays in this period that are all trying to do something similar which is to talk about the nature of totalitarianism essence of totalitarianism and get at what she thinks she didn't fully get at in in the book at the same time and i've mentioned this before she goes back and rewrites large parts of the third section of the book on totalitarianism to highlight and emphasize some of these new insights that she's gotten and so you know this is a very fruitful period in her research. It leads into the book, The Human Condition, which comes after it and is deeply important. So this chapter, Ideology and Terror, is probably the most quoted and 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 most thought of part of the book. It wasn't in the first edition. It really is in 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 20 or so pages, a little under 20 pages, I believe, one of the most dense and and, and brilliant attempts to articulate a major thesis, namely, what is the essence of totalitarianism? From the very title, right, the title, which is Ideology and Terror, a Novel Form of Government, you see three things that she wants to highlight. One is that totalitarianism has to do with ideology, it has to do with terror, and it's a novel form of government. But in, in, in my attempt to present this very dense and complicated and yet brilliant chapter to you, I'm going to break it into five arguments. I'm going to say that there are five different arguments that RN is actually making here in this chapter in her attempt to understand what totalitarianism is. First, this chapter reaffirms Arendt's guiding insight, which she begins at the very outset of the book, that totalitarianism is new, that it is a novel form of government, thus that it's distinct from tyranny, it's distinct from despotism, it's distinct from fascism, right? This is something we've talked about consistently as we've been reading the book, but it's it's very important for her. And I think for those of us interested in thinking about this book as a spur to understanding our contemporary situation, it should be very important to us as well. Because a lot of what we see in the world is rising tyranny or rising despotism, or what we might call illiberalism or illiberal democracy. But that's not the same for her as totalitarianism, and we'll get into that. So that's the first thing, that it that totalitarianism is a novel form of government, something really new. And the newness of it is important. The second argument is that totalitarianism seeks a fundamental transformation in the idea of humanity, in what man is, in what humans are, away from being a free actor to someone who is continually fabricated and made to actualize themselves in accordance with natural or historical laws. So this is the second part. And this is the part that, you know, is not in the title, right? You have ideology, terror, novelty, but you don't have lawfulness. And yet, if you look at these these chapters that we're that I that I mentioned that she's been writing from 1952 to 1955, this idea of man as being made into someone who is, in a sense, must follow in a profound way, in a in a without freedom, the laws of history and nature is a key aspect of what she's interested in. And she actually writes an entire essay called Law and Power, which we will read for next week. Uh, It's one of the two essays I've asked. It's already been sent around to you all and you should have it. It was not published in her lifetime, but it's been published in the last five years in the critical edition. And uh, it's really an important essay. So that will be one we speak about next week. The third is that insofar as man is transformed away from being a free actor into a product of higher laws, totalitarian subjects are molded to fit the laws of the movement by terror. And thus, terror becomes the essence of totalitarian domination, which she already has said in, in chapter 12. It's not simply a means for social control, as tyrants use it. Tyrants have always used terror, but they use terror for some end, namely to control people, to suppress political dissent. But in totalitarianism, terror serves a different function, which is to fully eradicate human freedom in private as well as in public life. The fourth argument, and this is also in the title, is that totalitarian domination fabricates its subjects in line with ideologies, in line with systems of thought that are logically rigid, even as they remove and insulate their inheritance, their adherence from reality. So. That's the fourth argument of the chapter, the fifth and the second one that's not mentioned in the title, but in my mind, maybe the most chilling and important is that she argues that the newness of totalitarian movements, which are secured by terror and motivated and inspired by ideology is made possible by the fundamental and new modern experience of loneliness the ever more pervasive sense of being abandoned and set adrift in a world without meaning so these are the five arguments that that i think one can find in this in this chapter you know it's only 18 20 page chapter and yet i could you could spend four or five days discussing it i'm going to try and 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 go through these five arguments a little bit in depth each one and then we can, of course, pursue them further. And then we're going to speak about this chapter again next week, but with with two other of her drafts of it in our minds as well. So we'll have more time to consider it. So the first one, again, is that totalitarianism is a novel form of government. She calls it, the, she says, she speaks of what she calls the earth-shattering originality of totalizing methods of organization, right? And remember how important organization was to her idea of totalitarianism, that propaganda becomes organization, but also total domination is about organizing people, turning them from a plurality into a unity. And that's what organization is. And she talks about what she also calls the extraordinary originality of totalizing domination and organization methods. In both Nazi Germany and Bolshevist Soviet Russia, totalitarianism, she writes, quote, developed new political, entirely new political institutions and destroyed all social, legal and political traditions of the country. Thus, the drive of total domination is not simply to pacify and control a population. That's what tyrants do, right? It's not simply to make the trains run on time and use terror or force to make order in society. That's what fascists do. But the goal of totalitarianism is to organize a people in accord with a single animating ideal. Thus she writes, she says that the origin, I'm sorry, the originality of totalitarianism is something new. And that means that it's tied in some profound way to our modern age. And if that's true, she says the dangers of totalitarianism will not disappear simply because Nazism and Bolshevism have been defeated. You know, just because Nazism and Bolshevism are gone doesn't mean totalitarianism is necessarily gone. It's something in the air of modernity. It's not an accidental occurrence. It will not disappear with the death of Stalin any more than it disappeared with the fall of Nazi Germany. And thus, in one of the more famous lines of this chapter, she writes The true problems of our time cannot be understood, let alone solved with the acknowledgement that totalitarianism became this century's curse only because it is so terrifyingly took care of its problems, right? The reason totalitarianism is a problem, it emerges. The reason it's there is because it is useful. It takes care of our problems. The problems of our century, the problems of meaninglessness, atomization, homelessness, rootlessness, loneliness— All of these problems of of, of modern society for her are problems that totalitarianism has an answer to. And thus, she concludes that it may even be true that the true predicaments of our time will assume their authentic form, though not necessarily the cruelest, only when totalitarianism has become a thing of the past, right? Yes, totalitarianism is cruel, right? And it's may be the cruelest form of government known to man. As a form of organized loneliness, she says, totalitarianism is considerably more dangerous than tyranny and despotism. And yet, it may not be the worst, right? There may be other things that come after it that could follow upon it, either in ways that are more cruel or less cruel, but that offer a similar solution to the problems that it tries to answer. And so she says, if totalitarianism is truly novel and a new form of government, how did it emerge, right? You know, it's rare that new forms of government entered the world. According to Plato, there was, you know, basically six. There's monarchy and tyranny, there's aristocracy and oligarchy, and there's the polity and there's democracy. And generally, these six have been Adequate for over 2,000 years for us to understand different forms of government. Okay, Kant comes up with another definition. There's lawful governments and lawless governments. But how does a brand new form of government emerge? And Rn says there has to be a new experience that entered the world to which totalitarianism is an adequate response. And she doesn't answer that here at the beginning of this chapter. It only comes back in the last four pages of the chapter in which she names that new experience, the experience of loneliness. And what she's going to argue is that the experience of loneliness is that new experience, that new problem of our time that makes the other forms of government in some meaningful way, inadequate to the human condition and which totalitarianism offered an adequate response. And we'll come back to loneliness at the end. But before she gets there and before she names loneliness as that modern experience, that radical modern experience, she says her second argument, which is that man in totalitarianism is the embodiment of laws of a movement. While it's tempting to see totalitarianism simply as lawless government or a new form of tyranny, she says on 461, she wants to say that totalitarianism is something radically new what unites all other earlier forms of tyranny is their lawlessness, right? That the tyrant is above the law. They can, they can change the law. They can make the law arbitrary. And in some ways, totalitarianism seems like a form of tyranny because it defies the positive laws. And yet, she says, in its core nature, totalitarianism is not lawless. In fact, it claims to follow the law but different laws, namely the laws of nature and history. She says that totalitarianism is monstrous, yet far from being lawless. If tyrants can violate norms and laws on a whim, totalitarian rulers gain their particular power by actually subordinating themselves to higher laws. They are the people, Hitler and Stalin, are the people who put themselves under higher laws in a way of bringing those laws to reality and actualization. So, in other words, while totalitarian government may ignore positive laws, like a tyrant, the totalitarian ruler, far from being arbitrary, is actually obeying higher laws. Thus, they're more obedient to these superhuman forces than any government ever was before. And this is that novelty. Thus, Arendt can argue that far from wielding its power in the interest of one man, like a tyrant, totalitarianism is quite prepared to sacrifice everybody, including the ruler, to the vital immediate interests and to the execution of the law of history or the law of nature. Thus, totalitarianism has this sense of aiming to establish a direct reign of justice on earth. And I know that's going to sound strange to you, but... It's claiming to produce mankind as a product of justice, as the product of the laws of history or the laws of nature. It's saying that we are going to, in a sense, follow these laws so strictly that we remake mankind uh, to be just. And in that sense, because it promises to make mankind the embodiment of justice on earth, it makes all laws laws of a movement. And the two examples that she offers here are Darwinism and Marxism, right? Darwinism says that man is the product of natural laws, natural laws of selection and development, laws of nature. These are racial laws. These are saying that the race of man will keep evolving uh, and it won't even stop with humans. It may end up stopping with transhumans, with AI, with humans becoming, you know, mere fodder for some great big machine in the, in the future. But these follow natural laws of hierarchy. And the Bolsheviks say that class struggle is the expression of the laws of history for the survival of the most progressive class. And thus, Engels says that Marxism is the Darwinism of history, which she cites on 463. So in both Darwinism and Bolshevism, which she understands as ideologies, the term law itself has changed its meaning from expressing the framework of stability within which human actions and motions can take place. And it becomes the expression of the motion itself. The law is the expression of the way that racial laws or, not, or, or historical class-based laws actualize themselves in a claim of justice on the earth. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to realize these natural and historical laws, and make man fully conform with them. Well, what if men don't want to conform with them or what they don't conform with them? What if they have freedom and they want to act differently than the natural or the racial laws allow? Well, you need terror to fit man into that iron band of these laws of the motion or laws of movement. And this brings us to the third essence of totalitarianism which is that as a material product of higher laws, right, these motion laws, totalitarian subjects are molded to fit the laws of the movement by terror. Terror, thus, is the essence of totalitarian domination. It's not simply a means for social control, as tyrants use terror to suppress political dissent. No, it's much more than that. It is a tool, terror becomes a tool for totalitarian rulers to fully eradicate human freedom in private as well as in public life and to thus actualize the realm of ideological justice on earth. Thus, terror is the realization of the laws of a movement. Its chief aim is to make it possible for the force of nature in Darwinism or racism or the forces of history in Marxism to race freely through mankind, unhindered by spontaneous human action. That's on page 465. Also on 465, she writes, terror, therefore, is lawfulness, right? Get your heads around that. Terror is lawfulness. It is the realization of the law of the the movement, of some superhuman force of nature or history that is now imposed on reality. It's taking the laws of nature and history and putting them onto reality, putting them onto man. That's what terror does in totalitarianism. Thus, terror as the execution of the law of movement, whose ultimate goal is not the welfare of men, right? As in, you know, in utilitarianism, nor is it even the interest of one man as a tyrant, but actually what terror As the execution of the laws of movement serves is the fabrication of mankind, the making of man into mankind, the elimination of individuals for the sake of the species, the sacrificing of the part for the sake of the whole. And thus on 465 to 466, he writes, terror fits men into the iron band of terror. It substitutes for laws that are hedges protecting the space between men. So traditionally laws she thinks think of as hedges as, as boundaries, which keep my life separate from your life and gives me a certain amount of freedom. But terror is not like that. It substitutes for laws that are hedges protecting the space between men, what she calls a band of iron, which holds them so tightly together that it is as though their plurality has disappeared into one man of gigantic dimensions. Total terror thus uses the old instrument of tyranny, terror, but destroys at the same time also the lawless, fenceless wilderness of fear and suspicion, which tyranny leaves behind. What does she mean? She means that in a tyranny, terror prevents you from speaking in public. It prevents political dissent but it leaves you still what she calls a desert of private life, where you could still be free. You can't build a public world. You can't act together, but you can have poetry. You can have little chess clubs. You can have RN reading groups. It leaves that alone, that desert of freedom. But she says in totalitarianism, this desert which is not really a space of political freedom, but is a private freedom, it still provides some room for the, some kind of freedom for its inhabitants in tyranny. But ter- totalitarianism, by pressing men together, destroys even that desert. It destroys the spaces between them with this iron band, as she calls it, even the desert of tyranny, insofar as it is still some kind of space appears like a guarantee of freedom. So terror destroys the one essential prerequisite of all freedom, which is the spaces between men. If the essence of totalitarian government is movement, the aim and the, and the realization of movement through terror, the aim of totalitarian education is not to instill convictions in men. It's not to make them believe something, she says on page 468. It's to bring them so close together to take away all of their privacy and freedom, that they actually lose the capacity to form any convictions. And if that's the case, she says, what makes people act in a realm of totalitarianism? There's some sort of a craving need for some insight into the law of movement. The only way you can act is to act in accordance with the law of movement. And what guides behavior, she says, on 468 in Totalitarian Rule is that you are prepared on both sides to be an executioner and a victim. You're prepared, you know, in Nazism, you're prepared to be either an executioner of the race laws or a victim of them. In Marxism, you're prepared to either be an executioner of the class struggle laws or a victim of them. And what prepares you to either be a victim or an executioner is ideology. And this brings us to the fourth uh, argument of this chapter: that totalitarian domination fabricates its subjects in line with ideologies, systems of thought that are logically rivet, rigid, logically rigid, even as they remove and insulate their, their adherents from reality. Ideologies, she says on four sixty eight, are isms that can explain everything by deducing it from a single premise: race ism, d ism. Communism, all of reality can be understood according to the idea of race, the idea of God, or the idea of class. But this is a pseudoscience, right? The ideas of race or class are not that important. You can actually put in any idea of race or any idea of class. What's important more than the idea is the logic of the idea. And this is, the, this is Arendt's real innovation in understanding of ideology, right? I don't think anyone really understood this before her, if you think it's right. The idea of ideology is not the idea. It's the instrument of explanation, that it follows its own logic. So racism is the belief that there is a motion inherent in the very idea of race. Deism is the belief that there there is a motion inherent in the idea of God. Communism is the idea that there's a, most inherent in the idea of class struggle. The actual content of these ideas is not the core of ideological power. It's the logical deduction from premises, right? What she says is there are many ideologies, right? There's deism, there's um, environmentalism, nationalism, right? But what makes racism and communism totalitarian ideologies is that the struggle between races and classes turned out to be Politically important in such a way that Hitler and Stalin could take these two ideologies and take them with utmost seriousness and say, oh, well, if there are dead classes or dying classes, then these classes must be killed. If there are races unfit to live, then these races must be exterminated. The process is more important than the idea. And this she talks about on pages 471 to 472. There are three elements, she says, of ideology, three totalitarian elements of an ideology on 470 to 471. The first is that an ideology explains not what is, but what is becomes. It has an element of motion to it. The second is that it's independent of all experience, right? It doesn't matter if the bourgeoisie are actually corrupt or not, or if the Aryans are a perfect race or not. It has nothing to do with experience or whether the Jews are actually greedy or not right nothing to do with it it's independent of experience and third that since ideologies have no power to transform reality because they because you can't actually make jews greedy just because you say they are right you have to emancipate thought from experience by focusing simply on the logic by focusing simply on the logic and thus there's a consistency in ideology that exists nowhere in reality and thus ideological logic requires that we stop thinking moving between thought and reality, and we exist purely in the realm of ideas. In this way, in this fully divorced from reality, the ideal subject, she says, of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist because the idea is not what's important and the reality is not what's important. What you need are people For whom the distinction between fact and fiction and the distinction between true and false no longer exists, so that they can simply exist in their logical prison, their logical reality of an ideology. And this brings us to the fifth argument in this text, which is that the novel emergence of totalitarian movements, right, novelty, secured by terror, the essence of totalitarianism, inspired by ideology, which is the principle of totalitarianism, is made possible by the fundamental and new modern experience of loneliness. The ever more pervasive sense of being abandoned and set adrift in a world without meaning. We come back to this basic experience, which he says is new in the living together of men. Isolation is not the same thing as loneliness. Tyrants isolate people so that they can prevent them from politically challenging them. Isolation is the beginning of terror, and it's a proto-totalitarianism. But since isolation leaves the private sphere intact, it's not totalitarianism. Loneliness is something completely different. Loneliness is being deserted of all union, human companionship. Totalitarianism, insofar as it's a response to loneliness, destroys, destroys all private life as well. It bases itself on loneliness, on the experience of not belonging to the world at all, which is among the most radical and desperate experiences of man, she says on 475. On 477, she writes, loneliness is so unbearable because of its loss, because it is the loss of one's self that can be confirmed only by the friendship or the company of equals. To be a self, you need other people who trust you so that you can trust yourself. Without friends, she continues, and others and plurality, we can't trust ourselves and we are thrust back into the only thing that we have left, which is our human mind and logical reasoning. That's the only thing that becomes reliable. If we're truly lonely and no one else is reliable or we can trust, all we can base ourself on is logic. And so she quotes Martin Luther, who says that it's not good for man to be alone. A lonely man, Luther says, always deduces one thing from the other and thinks everything to the worst. And she writes that the famous extremism of totalitarian movements consists in this thinking everything to the worst. So long as loneliness remains a human experience, totalitarianism will persist as a possible form of government. And on 478, she writes, there remains the fact that the crisis of our time and its central experience have brought forth an entirely new form of government, which as a potentiality and an ever-present danger, is only too likely to stay with us from now on, just as other forms of government, which came about at different historical moments and rested on different fundamental experiences, have stayed with mankind regardless of temporary defeats, Monarchies and republics, tyrannies, dictatorships, and despotism. Those forms of government still are around because they also represented possibilities of experiences of mankind. But now that there's a new experience of mankind, loneliness, the form of government that responds to that is now with us, likely in perpetuity. That The fact that totalitarianism, which responds to loneliness is unfortunately with us in in perpetuity, means that we have to understand the origin of totalitarianism in this fundamental experience of loneliness and understand that if we're going to resist and face up to the possibility of totalitarianism, we have to understand where it comes from and why it's attractive. And it's attractive because in responding to totalitarianism, it gives man, it puts man into meaning, into movements that provide for them a sense of self and identity, which are increasingly unable to be found elsewhere. All right, I'll stop there. Obviously, this is a quite rich chapter, and we will engage in discussing this text. I look forward to it. James,
2: great analysis, Roger. I've read this chapter maybe four or five times. It's so dense and delicious, but I, at the end, I come to chewing on the contemplation of an end in history. Right now, the loneliness is our loneliness is being accelerated algorithmically. We've lost connection with each other. And we subsequently lost connection with our common sense, which she had talked about in this chapter. In this acceleration, our identities are emerging apart from each other rather than in commons. Now, at the, at the end, she says, but there remains also the truth that in every end in history necessarily contains a new beginning, beginning the supreme capacity of man, freedom, That a beginning be made. Man was created. This beginning is guaranteed by each new birth. It is indeed every man. But new birth now is AI, algorithmic trading, social media, quantum computing, plundering private equity, world one, world two? Are we should we be contemplating the end in history?
1: Oh dare I. (laughs) All right James I think you know you're you're asking uh, probably the right question Arendt, you know does say at the end of the book right that 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 is as as awful as things get and as um lonely as as people are and as totalitarianism uh, has emerged it's not our fate right she wants to hold on to that man is free and man is free to start something new and you know remember Both Stalinism and Hitlerism failed in the end, and she takes that very seriously. In the book that comes after this, that she writes after this, The Human Condition, she says that the core of politics is transcendence. Now, what she means by that is not religious, but that what politics requires us to do is to come together and transcend our sort of personal uh, differences and create a, a common culture, a common world, a common polity uh, that we share. But um, the world that we're creating
2: now, world one, world two, with the AI, the algorithmic trading, social media, quantum computing, plundering private equity, what are
1: we creating? Well, we're not creating that's anything. That's a great question. What are we creating? Well, but, I mean, the point I mean, is- we don't have to create that in the end it's up to us and that's where she leaves it and and it may be you think oh well we we don't have any choice it's happening but but she thinks we do have a choice now it may get much worse but her hope and her faith is that totalitarianism can never be complete so long as there are human beings because human beings always have the potential for starting something new or freedom. I'll give you an example that I'll give you an example that's in my head. Okay. There's a a movie that's playing right now called the zone of interest by uh, a, a director named Jonathan Glazer. I spoke about it last night at a movie theater up in, in the Hudson Valley Millerton movie house. It's an extraordinary movie. It's I think the best Holocaust movie that's ever been made. It concerns Rudolf Haas and his wife Hedwig Haas, and their family uh, who are the com- he's the commandant of auschwitz and in an extraordinary move for a holocaust movie, as far as I can tell, you never see a prisoner during the entire movie uh you never see uh someone in in the camp. you hear them and the the sound in the movie is haunting, but you never see them but near the end of the movie, there's this one Polish girl who is the one hopeful character in the whole movie who finds a canister and in the canister is some crumbled up sheet music, which it turns out is sheet music by one of the people in the camp, Joseph Wolf, which is written in Yiddish and is called sunbeams. And it ends with, you know, all the different depravities which we are suffering. Nevertheless, we hold, hold on to the flag of freedom. And it's one of the most extraordinary and, and beautiful expressions of in the camps, amidst the horrors, amidst the complete eradication of freedom in the camp. You know, this is Auschwitz 3 we're talking about, one of the worst of the worst. the the inmates get together and sing a song about the possibilities of freedom. You know, that to me is an expression of what Arendt means by uh, the way that totalitarianism, which is an attempt to fully eradicate freedom, runs into the problem that as long as human beings exist, there will be a threat to totalitarianism. Now, obviously, if we replace human beings with bots and AIs, that may not be the case. And, you know, you may find that AI allows for an even greater threat to human freedom than Auschwitz III did, and that would be horrific if it does. But our job as as humans is to continue to think about how to use AI and how to um, limit it. You know, and, 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 you know, when, when AI, when, when chat GPT first came out and Ken Rouse, uh, I think in the, I forget whether he writes for the journal or the times, you know, started talking to it and it tried to convince him to leave his wife and marry it. You know, he, Microsoft went and changed chat so that it put certain boundaries on what it could do and what it would say. How much are we going to limit it? How are we going to regulate it? How are we going to resist it? How are we going to train ourselves and educate ourselves so that we can resist the allure of some of these uh, artificial intelligence desires? So, you know, that's the challenge of freedom. If if you think the main threat to freedom is artificial intelligence, which it may well be, the response has to be: how do we preserve realms of humanity, uh, spaces of humanity for freedom to continue to exist? And and, and I and I think it's it's a challenge. There's no doubt about it, but I don't think it's an impossible challenge.
2: I think that the greatest danger is the loneliness.
1: That it just, it's increasing exponent, exponentially, no? Well, I mean, I think I think loneliness, you know, uh, so the, you know, for, for those of you who are members of the center, the conference next year is tribalism and cosmopolitanism, right? Which is, and last year's conference was on friendship. You know, these are all attempts to grapple with this problem of, What does it mean to not be alone? Can we create cosmopolitan worlds that are not lonely? Or do we have to move into a more tribalist feeling where people feel a a tribal connection with others? And with that comes things like discrimination or a kind of ethnocentrism or things of that sort. You know, there's a deep human need for connection and being part of a group. Can you create? cosmopolitan groups that provide that sense of connection for the majority of the people in the world. Only uh, at the RN Center. Yeah, well, I mean, the, you know, nothing against the RN Center, but we're, we appeal to a select group, not to masses of people. Uh, and I don't think that will ever change. I think it's possible to create communities of meeting on a cosmopolitan level but I think they're rare and I don't think they're um, mass movements. And, And I think there is a problem in politics today about to what extent we can carry forward cosmopolitan liberal governance at a time in which it's obviously not answering the needs of our population. I mean, if you look at the main public health crisis in the United States, and I think in most of the liberal world, It is mental health, right? That mental health illness, that mental health crisis that we're in is largely a crisis of meaning and loneliness. It's a crisis. And what's amazing is that if a country is having a mental health crisis and it goes to war, suddenly the mental health crisis goes away because in the midst of a war, you have purpose, you have meaning, You, you come together and you fight together. And then when the war ends, mental health returns. This is this has been a well-studied and well-documented phenomena. That's a, an incredible indictment of liberal Western society. The fact that people in it are so unhappy that they would rather at times be in a war and are happier at war than they are in peace. That's an extraordinary indictment of liberal Western society. And those of us who are trying to defend liberal Western society need to honestly confront. What should I read about that? Is there a book on that? Well, anything Hannah Arendt wrote. But um, the keynote speaker at our conference next year is Sebastian Junger, uh, who writes oh, yeah. about it quite brilliantly. Um, yes. His book, Tribes and yep. Freedom, two, two of his more recent books, Tribe and Freedom, are, are both on that topic and uh, I think would be well worth taking a look at. Thanks, Roger. Yep. Susan.
3: No, I just want to go on record to challenge this idea of isms uh, being the same as ideology, because I think what's happened, at least in our time is that this use of ism is being tacked on to all kinds of things. And my main example of this is feminism, which I disagree is not this kind of ideology that is prescribing what's supposed to happen in the future. It's an analysis of the past, but it is in no way like Marxism and Maoism and all these other isms. So I I really find um, this problematic To, to say every ism becomes an ideology that is rigid and is giving the answer for everything. I just don't see it. Some of these are, but I think so many things are now being Called ideologies, and and really as a way of silencing people, and saying, "Well, you're adhering to an ideology, and therefore you're not willing to hear anything anybody has to say, and so forth." So certainly, as a feminist, that is not how I see it. It's not how I feel. I don't think it fits in this definition that she used.
1: Right. No, thank you. You know what she says is that not that not all ideologies are totalitarian ideologies, right? And so, you know, it in fact most are not, right? So she doesn't have the same critique of feminism or environmentalism or nationalism that she would have of communism and 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 racism. And and by the way, there are forms of communism and racism that don't need to be totalitarian either. They happened to in the 20th century have become two ideologies that uh, were weaponized in ways that became totalitarian, but they don't have to be. I don't think environmentalism has to be totalitarian ideology, but it can be, right? If you're an environmentalist who says the earth you know, is, is the mother and the earth comes first, and we must protect the earth against all things, that may, you know, the logic of that means that all things that injure the earth must be eliminated. Then the things that injure the earth more than anything else are human beings. And so there is a radical environmentalism, right? Earth first ideology, which has inspired some radical environmentalists that becomes totalitarian in its approach. It's not, mainstream environmentalism um, and it hasn't ever succeeded in becoming a political ideology that inspires the masses. I think there can be a totalitarian feminism, but again, it has never, as far as I know, become a dominant part of feminism and become a dominant part of our political world. So, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think her analysis requires in any way that any of these other isms be be seen as totalitarian or political weapons in that sense most of them are not she's just saying that these two became that and and when they did it had very little to do with the content of their ideology and much more to do with the 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 logical coherence of it
3: I guess the only uh, other thing I I would say I I don't think the word radical should be used uh, interchangeably with extreme, and to me radical means going to the root, and I would call what you're describing extremism, um. Yeah. But not that's a fa-
1: that's obviously a fair point. That's I mean that's obviously Aaron's point in in Ike in in her understanding of evil. Yeah, you know, here in this book she uses them interchangeably. Later she she will change that so it's a fair point. Extremism is the is the point that that she's interested in. So yes, thank you. Warren, Dr. Warren? Yes. Yeah.
4: yes, Warren. Okay. Thank you. You can hear me, right? Yep. Great. Thanks so much for a wonderful lecture. Such an important chapter. You know, uh to the point of loneliness. I think it's it's so crucial to think about, and especially in, in my work, I'm a psychologist and a senior fellow uh, for a think tank called uh, Equimundo, which is the Center for Justice and Social and Masculinity Studies. There's the attraction between for men who I think are lonely as a group for reasons of development and uh, traditional ideologies. Uh, and their attachment and their attraction to fascist movements, which is really rampant around the world. We have published a study of fifty thousand men, American men, a study of American men, on our website now, and the the, the huge, huge amount of loneliness and meaninglessness and confusion and attraction to right wing uh, figures and fascist movements. And I'm wondering. Apropos of that, did Arendt discuss anywhere or did she think about gender masculinity in relationship to these issues? And if she did, what, did she have any solutions or suggestions?
1: Yeah, thanks. It's an important question. I mean, Niobe Way, who spoke at our last conference on friendship, I know this, this is what her work is about. And, you know, she's interested in the ways in which our culture forces men to to not connect uh and and to and to diminish connection and be more individualist and strong and and whatever in ways that lead to them to being uh lonely and and disconnected. And a lot of her work is on that and it's and it's and it's very important work. And I'm sure it's related to what you're doing. And there have been a number of recent studies, including your report, which I think I've read with her, about how the increasing loneliness of men has been leading to a turn towards illiberal, sometimes right, sometimes left wing illiberalism, uh, both in different countries. You know, I think that's an important thing to think about. It comes back to what I was talking about with James, uh, about, you know, that we have to take seriously, that there's something deeply dissatisfying for large portions of our country and our culture in the West about liberalism. And it's one of the things that we have to confront. You know, as for Arendt saying a whole lot about gender in that way, not so much. I did in her letter to Gershom Sholem in 1963, when he accuses her of not having love for the Jewish people and, and required and asks that she, you know, take certain things back. She says that the only reason if he was really upset with her book is because he expects her to agree with her because he's a man and that men uh, expect to be listened to in ways that make it hard for them to actually listen to other people, including women. And that friendship requires really listening to and respecting the opinions of others. And she wonders if he as a man is capable of friendship in that way. Uh, that's how she ends that letter to him in 1963. So, you know, it's not something she writes a lot about in her in her work, but uh, I think that's there. And it's clearly something she noticed in some of her male interlocutors throughout the years.
4: This quick response, you know, that's great. Um, the other factor about men and war, uh, which you, you notice about meaning and camaraderie, it's also... Uh, men are bored. You know, we live in a kind of boring culture often for men, and war promises, uh, among many things you noted, uh, excitement. So that's something else we have to think about.
1: Yeah, I mean, the it. question is, what? Why does it have to be boring? And and what's boring about it? And why is, you know, what is it about our culture that's boring? And, right. and you know, there's different answers to that. Sebastian Junger really has an answer, which is that we need a kind of tribal identity which we find in things like crises and war, which we don't find in wealthy, peaceful societies. What to do with that, you know, whether one can overcome that and find meaning and tribe, tribalism in in peaceful societies is, I think, an important question.
4: Yeah, I, I don't agree with that, but I don't want to take Yeah, There are a lot of ways we could address boredom, but that's yeah. a whole other topic. Thank
1: All right. You. So anyway, we're going to... Continue this discussion next week. We're going to read two other versions of this kind of of this last chapter uh which she published which she never published but which we were later published in the book that came out a couple of years ago this big poem called The Modern Challenge to Tradition Fragments of a Book, the book that was never written. Look forward to uh talking to you next week. Enjoy reading Hannah Arendt and see you soon. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to follow the podcast and leave us a like in case you enjoyed this week's chapter reading. This is Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz and we hope you'll be back next time. If you'd like to participate in discussions, please become a member of the Hannah Arendt Center and join our weekly reading groups. We'd love to see you every Friday. For more info, visit our website at hac.bard.edu and follow us on Twitter at Ahrens Center or Instagram at Hannah Ahren Center at Bard. My name is Jana Marder and I look forward to welcoming you back next week for another episode of Reading Hannah Arendt with Roger Berkowitz. Goodbye and auf Wiedersehen.